Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. The topic of today's podcast is Parkinson's disease. And I'm going to start the topic by reading out a case presentation or a story. Janet is a 68-year-old woman. She's a retired school teacher who lives at home alone with her dog. Janet's husband passed away five years ago, and she has been experiencing some depression and loneliness and has been withdrawn from her friends and family over the past few years. She experienced a minor fall about three months ago after tripping over her dog and landed on an outstretched right hand leading to wrist pain. So she saw her family doctor regarding her wrist pain, but At the same time, she was also complaining of some recent trouble with her balance, and she had noticed a small hand tremor. She mentioned to the doctor that she had become quite wobbly, and she was having trouble with her balance. Every time she'd be in her small kitchen, she would bang her knees and elbows against the cabinets and the walls because she couldn't stay still, or when she walked, she wasn't able to keep her balance. And so... The doctor saw some scratches and some bruises on her legs and arms because of that. She was also having some trouble holding things steadily in her hand, and she said that she was becoming slower. She was referred to a neurologist by her primary care physician, and the neurologist examined her and found that she was having this particular kind of a tremble that we call pill rolling, where you know the thumb and the index finger kind of roll over each other, and it seems like as if, you know, somebody's actually rolling a pill with that particular hand, and it seemed to be more prominent during rest. She was also having some stooped posture. She was always a very proud woman. She would walk very straight and strong, but she had lost that, and she was more stooped, and she had like a curved posture. Instead of taking longer, steadier steps, she was actually taking very small steps, and Her whole gait and steppage was slower. Her face was also kind of flat. You know, she had a flat affect and her voice was softer and kind of muffled. So the neurologist did a couple of tests and imaging. And after all of that, she was diagnosed with an early stage idiopathic Parkinson's disease. She received a referral for physical therapy after that because falls were one of the major risks and the neurologist wanted to make sure that she maintained her functional status. And the neurologist also gave her some medication and told her that they came with very strict directions. You know, she had to take them on time and at particular times of the day and that she needed to be very compliant with them. And all of this was just too much information for Janet, and she was very, very scared because the neurologist kept referring to it as a neurodegenerative condition, which basically means that this is something that will continue to get worse and worse and worse, and that there were no specific treatments for it, but there were some medications that could minimize her symptoms. So that's the story of Janet, who came to deal with Parkinson's disease. Yeah, and it's a long course disease. I mean, a lot of times it's um, a disease that happens younger than those uh, degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease and lasts longer. So a person lives with this progressive disease longer and longer. I have a long history of working with Parkinson's patients. As you know, before um, 
leaving NIH. Uh, I did two years of work specifically in Parkinson's at NIH and uh, um, uh, the, the basically was the center, the mecca of, of uh, movement disorders. So patients would come from all over the world uh, at all stages of the disease. Um, and you saw this cornucopia of, 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 of symptoms and signs and manifestations from very minor movements to severe debilitating freezing episodes where the person is absolutely unable to move. Uh, some of the audience uh, might be familiar with the, that stage uh, in the movie Awakening um, uh, with, uh, I believe it was Robert De Niro and... Robin uh, Williams. Robin Williams. Mm -hmm. And you see in that movie, so if you haven't seen that movie, oh my goodness, you must see that movie. I think it was... It's one of my favorite movies, and it's not just because I'm yeah. biased of, uh, with, the, with the condition. And it's a true story, but you see the true manifestation of this devastating disease where patients uh, were frozen. In that situation, it was after an infection, an influenza that affected a particular part of the brain. We'll talk about all of that, but, but the symptoms are so varied, so different. At NIH, I would uh, also see patients that had just gotten some stem cell or some procedure where dopamine was being stimulated, and you would see the, the reaction to it. Actually, it's back then in 2002 when we learned that, around that time, that it's not just giving dopamine, but the appropriate amount of dopamine and, and, and in a particular manner, because if you don't, you get this uh, alternative response or a, or a counter response where there's significant movements, these, these riding movements called dyskinesias that happen because now you've given too much dopamine. And they were so bad that these poor patients would lose one to two to three pounds a day from all this movement. Imagine the pain and the discomfort. And then some of them would actually tear muscle from bone. Um, so uh, it's um, those are the extreme cases, but the, as it happens, the disease progresses. Um, uh, so um, that's that's what we have to deal with, and and we have to deal with it um, by the millions throughout the world. Yeah, it's um, it's probably one of the most common referrals to neurology, uh, Parkinson's disease, and. It's a chronic, long-term, uh, progressive neurological disorder that affects the central nervous system. And so what actually happens in Parkinson's disease is that there are specific parts of the brain that, get, that experience degeneration. Um, and there are particular cells in the brain that get affected more than others and it affects movements, but it can also affect thinking process, emotions, and um, it's, uh, like you said, it's like a, presents with multiple different types of signs and symptoms. And some people can uh, present some of the emotional or the non-motor symptoms first, and then uh, there are others who actually, you know, end up showing the motor movements before anything else. And, and what's devastating about this disease is that by the time you find out, about 80% of those cells that produce dopamine are, have, are gone. So you don't see the symptoms until it's, well, I wouldn't say too late, but significant damage has been done. These dopamine-producing cells are in certain places. I mean, there are three pathways that have different functions. 
you have the mesolimbic pathway, you have the infundibular pathway and others, and they have particular functions. But the main one that's initially affected is substantia nigra, this little sub black substance, well, sub substantia nigra, that's the name. It produces um, dopamine. Um, and and it, it's the size of the tip of your pinky. That's the dopamine producing um, uh, uh, section of the brain, the substantia nigra. There are other places as well, but that's a, a major one that's affected first. And, and by the time you see the first symptoms, when they've done autopsies or they've seen that 80% of those cells are gone and, and it has become a different color because it's no longer um, uh, functional in producing uh, dopamine. And, and, and the symptoms are like, like, um, like you said, they vary greatly, mm -hmm. but there's what they call the motor symptoms and then the non-motor symptoms. By the way, a lot of the symptoms are retrospectively recognized, meaning that, oh, looking back, now that you have Parkinson's, oh, I had these symptoms that are common in Parkinson's right. 10 to 15 to 20 years earlier. Mm -hmm. um, I'll go over some of the list of the symptoms that are motor symptoms. These are usually later. The non-motor symptoms can happen earlier. Mm -hmm. The motor symptoms are tremors. And at NIH, we had a huge budget. And even for something as simple as measuring tremors, we have this, these machines that they would pay thousands of dollars just to measure the tremor because there are different kinds of tremors that we have. Right. There's the essential tremor. There's the movement tremor. There's the, the, the dyskinesias and, and ataxias. And then, um, and then uh, uh, familial tremors. And, and of course, the Parkinsonian tremor. Each of these have different frequencies. Um, the essential tremor, uh, people are familiar with the, um, the actress uh, Catherine Hepburn had this movement that, uh, that, 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 that her whole body would shake and later on even her voice would shake. So they would have these, these, these kind of a voc vocal production that, that, that shakes. So essential tremors are not just in the hands. No. They can actually be in the voice. They can be in the head, chin. Um, and, and even, you know, the lower extremities Correct. as well and the limbs as well. It's more central, whereas in, in Parkinson's, the, the tremor is uh, more external. And, and in Parkinson's, it's not just the tremor either. The tremor is about four to six hertz. Um, and in frequency. It's, uh, and in frequency. And it's usually one side worse than the other. Sometimes it mm. happens both sides. But, but, it, but, but you, uh, and, and you see the movements coming in. The person has this sense of anxiety. What's happening? I can't stop this movement, except during sleep. In sleep, it goes away. Yeah. But during wakefulness, it's it's this movement that they feel. And then they also have this thing called bradykinesia. Brady means slow. Kinesia means movement. Slowness of movement. And they have, and part of that is this, this little steps, these small little steps. Uh, it has a French name, march petit en pas. Small little steps. So the movement becomes smaller. By the way, the smallness thing is universal. Their handwriting becomes smaller. Mm. Their voice becomes smaller. Their, their movement becomes smaller. And they're not, a lot of times they're not even aware of this, this, this paucity of movement, this miniaturization of movement. And, 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 and family members actually recognize it. That's true. Even before the diagnosis. Yes. Now, the handwriting, this is a common thing. The handwriting becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And they're like, wait a second, I've never seen this in anybody else. Well, you see it in Parkinson's. Uh, and the voice also gets... You talked about this thing about the face, this this flat face. Right. This person that was very emotive, the face was re reflective of everything, all of a sudden becomes very 
flat faces, or they call it hypomimia, lack of expression in the face. Um, the, um, the, the, the walking becomes unstable. There's a stoop posture. It's not because of a back problem or a scoliosis. No, they just become more stooped. Do you think it's more because of the lack of visual spatial assessment, you know, sometimes because of that? Or do you think that it also has to do with imbalance in um, basically the tone and the rigidity of the movement? It's a because combination. rigidity and, and tone yeah. issues are one of the things that you get to see in Parkinson's as well. Absolutely. And the reason we're going over this is because. This is the disease that affects millions, and, and we'll go over the, 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 the number here. But um, And so people should be aware of it. Now, every time somebody has a tremor, or every time somebody has some difficulty walking, it's not Parkinson's, but it's That's good true. to know that symptoms are there and, and to be investigated. Um, we talked about micrographia, which is the smallness or, uh, or uh, miniaturization of writing, and then dyskinesias, which is these abnormal movements. Now, the non-motor uh, symptoms are even more interesting. Um, one of the more common uh, non-motor movements uh, symptoms is GI disturbances early on, 20 years. Now you would say that, oh, constipation is so 20 common. 20 years before the onset of any symptoms, patients or people tend to have constipation. Yes, and that's true. And, 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 and it's, it's just unusual. It's very, very unusual. But, and, and people might say that because constipation is common, so we might be overreading this. No, when, when they've looked at this, when they've controlled for age, gender, and everything else, they've seen that constipation is a lot more common early on in Parkinson's patients. Um, the other symptoms are loss of sense of smell. That's right. Very yes. common in, in patients with uh, uh, Parkinson's disease When you think on. about all of these symptoms, it sounds like almost as if, you know, somebody actually turns the dial down. Yes. Like everything is dialed down. The voice is slower. Handwriting is smaller. Steps are smaller. Movements are slower. And it, it kind of makes sense because the origin, the origin of the problem is because of lack of dopamine in the brain. Yeah, absolutely. Even this lack of dopamine affects sleep. And uh, um, REM, eye movement during REM, people actually have these uh, abnormal movements. So they're no longer paralyzed. They have unusual movements where they actually sometimes become violent. And, and, and the, oh, and the other one is restless leg syndrome. So we always say that if somebody has restless leg syndrome, it could be from iron deficiency, from folate deficiency, or uh, neuropathy. But the other thing that's very common is uh, Parkinsonian symptoms. So it, it, they're not perfectly correlated, but they're very common. So these are some of the common symptoms. And then the more uncommon things are things like uh, hallucinations, visual-spatial disturbances, um, and, and cognitive decline. Cognitive decline, we thought, would come usually comes much, much later in the disease. But we also know now that some cognitive changes start very early in the disease, not necessarily at the level of dementia and things of that nature, but especially visual-spatial disturbances, especially executive or planning uh, problems. Uh, minor at the beginning, but it's definitely now detectable. So these are some of the things that you see with Parkinson's, the motor symptoms and not motor symptoms. And at the, at the base of it all, at the center of it all, is dopamine or, or paucity of dopamine. Dopamine affects your sleep, your REM, dopamine affects your thinking, dopamine affects motivation. It's another thing that happens, motivation goes down. 
dopamine is the main neurotransmitter as far as the upper cortical, as far as movement is concerned. And you see all of these systems being affected. Um, and so that's, that's, those are the things to be aware of. It's fascinating. So, so the midbrain uh, dopaminergic cells, the substantia nigra, it gets affected and dopamine levels go down. It's so fascinating how it affects movement and motivation and the reward function at the same time. Yes. And you see different manifestations of it. Um, let's talk about a little bit of, uh, uh, regarding the epidemiology of Parkinson's yeah. disease. So, um, and you know, this is basically very current from um, the latest literature. Parkinson's disease is counted as the second most common neurodegenerative disease after Alzheimer's disease worldwide. Mm -hmm. It affects approximately 1 million people in the United States. And it is estimated that about 60,000 new cases are diagnosed every year. That's a lot. That's a lot. 60,000 cases every year. And around the world, more than 10 million people suffer from Parkinson's disease. And after age 60, 1% of the population is affected by it. And there are some people who develop Parkinson's disease at a younger age. Um, a great example of that is uh, the actor Michael, Michael J. Fox, J. Fox yes. who started developing the disease in his late 20s, wasn't he? Like was. He was probably like 29 or 29 30 when he did old, that. Yeah. And he's done so much for this field and you know supported um, the foundations and... He really has done a lot of great work. He has, yeah. And he continues to support Another person is Muhammad research. Ali. Right, exactly. Muhammad Ali started developing the symptoms in late 50s and in his early 60s. And it's yeah. most likely because of the um, repetitive trauma to the head. Correct. There's a version of uh, Parkinson's, uh, which is Parkinson's pugilistica, which is uh, very strongly correlated with repetitive trauma to the head. Right, exactly. Um, since we're talking about two men, Michael J. Fox and Muhammad Ali, men are more likely to be affected than women yes. epidemiologically. And it is seen more among Caucasians than African-Americans or other races. In fact, most of the studies report the highest prevalence of Parkinson's disease in white men compared Correct. to any other population. But one famous woman is Janet Reno, mm. our attorney general, I mean, former attorney general, she was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Oh, wow. Interesting. All right. So as far as causal pathway is concerned, what do we know? It, you know, essentially, the literature says that it's not quite clear as to what exactly causes Parkinson's disease, but there are um, several proposed um, ideas and hypotheses, genetic risks, toxins in the environment, oxidative stress, traumatic brain injury, even some vascular phenomenon, some um, glucose metabolism disorder, some of the research that Correct. you and I were involved in at Cedars-Sinai, uh, and sometimes some pharmaceuticals can actually push people to develop symptoms of Parkinson's disease, and there are, there are others as well. There's also a genetic component, but now with this um, GWAS analysis, which is genome-wide analysis, We've talked about that several times, amazing new tools. That's just one of the tools. We know that about 15% of uh, Parkinson's is genetically associated. Mm. So, that's so they the, have a family history. Correct, exactly. Right. And then um, some recent studies have identified some genetic mutations that increase the risk of developing Parkinson's disease. 
An example of that was um, a study that was published in the Journal of Nature Genetics in 2020, and they identified a new variant associated with an increased risk of Parkinson's disease. So exciting things are happening as far as identification of specific genes are concerned. I mean, we're learning that these diseases that we put under one umbrella are not just one disease. There are, there are different kind of manifestations and pathways and, and, and risk fa factor um, uh, correlations and connections that l l end up looking like a particular symptom family. Um, and the, the same is true in Alzheimer's, the same is true in, in, in Parkinson's and others as well. Um, and it's not just uh, the fact that you see a particular protein, like for example, in Parkinson's, you see this uh, accumulation of a particular protein called synuclein, or in Alzheimer's, you see amyloid and tau, but it's that's down, downstream. Uh, upstream, it's a combination of different pathways that lead to uh, assault on the dopamine producing cells. Exactly right. Wonderful. So as far as environmental factors are concerned, um, there have been multiple studies that have looked at various factors. These studies are, uh, they basically come to us from observational studies. We don't really have very, um, <clears throat> very specific data on that. And we've it's basically tough. looked at associations over a long period of time. It's very tough yeah. to look at influence of environmental factors like toxins or, or air pollutants and make a strong enough case. Uh, we now, I mean, especially in large databases, you can even look at we were particle size and we say there's a correlation mm -hmm. and we kind of believe that it is that relationship. But those kind of relationships are very difficult to, to make because it's not just one time in, in history in one place. It's usually across time and space, right? Exactly. So over the years, and you, you you live in a certain place, and then you leave that place, and and somebody has to make that correlation. It has to be at a particular age. Like we, we were talking about this MS uh, recently. Remember that before the age of fifteen, if you're in a certain area of the world, your risk goes uh, is higher. And it's not just that area and the age; it's the infection or a nutrient deficiency on top of that. Those those other factors. Same is true with Parkinson's. It's a combination of the exposure probably and the genetic risk and the environmental factor and probably some age and male component as far as testosterone is concerned. So all these things combine across time and space and age. Mm -hmm. That's difficult to figure out. Right, right, um, absolutely. But we're, we're, with the tools we have now with these amazing computers being able to churn out, you know, tens of thousands of data points, if not more, millions of data points to be exact, and, and creating uh, relationships and analysis, I think we'll get better clarity in the next few years. Right. Despite the lack of clarity, there, there are some data points worth mentioning here when it comes to certain chemicals and pesticides and environmental risk factors and exposure to these. <clears throat> yeah. And I'm always very cautious especially when I use terms like toxins because, you know, they've been so overused out there that sometimes it's almost a red flag for pseudoscientific thought processes. So you're so. saying that I shouldn't put that little patch at the bottom of my foot and take all the toxins away? No, you should never do that. Okay. What is it called? Like it salon pretty, pause? It's really cool though, because when you take it out in the morning, it's black. And, so can you can you just describe yeah, that to the so audience what you're funny. talking about? It is that? so I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's making millions of dollars. And on TV, they show this little patch 
that you put at the bottom of your foot when you sleep and in the morning you wake up and it's black. Yeah, it and, like and, leeches and, yeah, off all, all the toxins. The toxins. Oh, and, and, and this detoxification um, um, ploy or whatever you want to call yeah. it, the pejorative term of the day you want to put on it, um, charlatanism, is just blowing our minds. It really is. Uh, from, really is. from the pills that you take that detoxify to to um, uh, herbs to to dispatch that is supposed to take away all the toxins. And the reality is it turned black because they've actually put a chemical in that thing that Who overnight knows? the sweat makes it go, you know, become black or Most just a matter likely. of uh, oxygen. So, Most likely. In any case, I, I, I wanted to preface the conversation by saying I'm very oh, uh, uncomfortable with I the know. word detox. I went on a digression, and sorry. Toxins. No, no, it's important to tell people what we're thinking about. But, you know, as far as environmental um, elements are concerned, there have been some observational studies um, that have that have been published published since the 19 i would say 1980s oh, and 1990s jump in here again. forget about the, the uh, science okay celery juice science? the ultimate detox celery juice yes yes Stop. i love the celery juice detox yeah i didn't want that to be part of the podcast I, I, but okay it, it has to be it's, it's important yeah i know that's very annoying at times but mm -hmm. <laughs> in any case um so these studies that have been conducted over the years um, in reputable journals um, have looked at exposure to pesticides and herbicides, and there seems to be a modest increase in the risk of developing Parkinson's disease among people who are exposed to pesticides and herbicides. Mm -hmm. Now, it's important to separate what we mean by exposure. Exposure means direct exposure, like farmers or people who actually work in certain factories and farms and industries where they come in direct contact with these pesticides and herbicides, mm -hmm. but not in people who say, for example, eat non-organic food. We don't have any evidence of people eating non-organic food not doing very it well. It might be true, but we don't have evidence. We don't have evidence for yeah. that as of yet. But we do seem to have some evidence uh, when it comes to food and consumption of milk. Now, the the relationship is weak but say for example there was a paper that was published in the american journal of epidemiology back in 2007 and um, what they looked at was uh, they looked at i think it was in the american cancer society's cancer prevention study in their nutrition cohort there were 57 plus thousand men and 73,000 plus women. And they essentially found out that dairy consumption may increase the risk of Parkinson's disease, particularly in men. And this pattern has been replicated. There was another paper in the Journal of Neurology in 2017. And they found out that there have been multiple cohorts and studies that showed that when people consume uh, milk or dairy products, but specifically milk, they had increased risk for Parkinson's disease. Um, for example, in the nurses' health study and the health uh, professionals' follow-up study. So yes, there are some flaws in the data. There may be some factors that may not have been adjusted for, but we do see that pattern. But would you say that you have high level of confidence on this data? No. 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 So, they so, themselves so, say that they don't have high level yeah, of so confidence. Yeah, so that's why I want to make sure that when we talk about this kind of stuff, the audience recognizes that we try, try to stay true to the weight of the data as well. 
we don't ignore data that's accumulating. We don't ignore trends. When we did the Omega study um, uh, review, we said that there isn't great data, but the trends point to a particular yeah. direction. Yeah. And that leaves it basically open to ourselves because there's no consensus at this point to do one or the other. Um, um, uh, so the same thing here. There's no absolute consensus that milk causes uh, uh, Parkinson's or, or drinking milk increases your rate of uh, Parkinson's, but there's a trending data or uh, that shows a signal at least signal and right. a pretty strong signal. Right. Uh, well, again, we it's quantitative uh, playing around uh, these words, but uh, semantics. But uh, there, are, it's more than just um, uh, hearsay. It's more than just a few case studies. There are some studies that that kind of point in that mm -hmm. direction. Uh, further work needs to be done. Absolutely. I look forward to learning more about this, and I'm keeping my eyes peeled to see if there's any other data points that you know suggest that. In any case, um, those were the environmental factors. Um, what do we know as far as head trauma is concerned and what has your experience <clears throat> been while you were training and in the clinic? Yeah, so head trauma has been, it's, there, it's known that people who have head trauma have greater proclivity uh, for developing uh, Parkinson's. I mean, it's true that people who have repetitive head trauma have greater proclivity for many of these diseases, including uh, white matter disease, which then uh, goes on to become vascular dementia, much greater uh, proclivity for um, uh, diseases like CTE, which is uh, encephalopathy, uh, diseases like dementia and Alzheimer's. So if you have repetitive head trauma, you're going to be have a, and this is not weak data. There's fairly strong data. Uh, it's not causal. You can't do causal analysis here. You don't do you know, uh, a double blind study where you give head trauma to people and no, not give that. That's can't unethical. That. You can't do it. But as far as correlational data, there's pretty strong correlational data that repetitive head trauma does lead to all these different uh, de degenerative diseases, um, even vascular diseases, but especially Parkinson's, especially dementia, especially encephalopathy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, um, let's talk about some infections. You you mentioned the movie Awakening. Uh, not to be confused with the movie The Awakening because that's a horror movie. Oh, is it? Uh, yes, Awakening. <laughs> and you, you would know hate that, that I have not seen that. You'd movie be running yet. out of the room if that's yeah. on. Awakenings was, um, I think, uh, it was a movie that was uh, based on a 1973 nonfiction book, and in 1990 they made a movie out of that. I believe uh, was it in 1990? Some some other date. But in any case, it, this was uh, about catatonic patients who survived the epidemic of encephalitis lethargica in the 1917 to 1928 era. And uh, Robert De Niro and Robin Williams played the parts of a patient and a doctor respectively. Uh, so what do we know as far as viral infections and Parkinson's disease is concerned? Yeah, so there's a lot of evidence that many of our uh, diseases may be um, at least if not primarily caused by viral infections, they're propagated or your, your risk goes higher. Uh, and, and the same is true with Parkinson's. Um, um, whereas, uh, ironically, there's another uh, a way that you, viruses and infections have been correlated with diseases, but it's in reverse, meaning that when somebody has degenerative disease, their blood-brain barrier get, becomes porous and weak. So they're, they're going to have more central infections. So people then think, oh, it's the infection that caused the disease. No, it's the, the degenerative disease that led to the porous nature of the blood-brain barrier, which then led to the inv uh, infectious agents 
being found in the central nervous system. But in Parkinson's, there seems to be a, a, cor a higher correlation. Remember with MS, it's the same thing. There seems to be a little bit of a higher correlation between infections. Uh, in Parkinson's though, the infectious agents seem to be uh, influenza A virus, H1N1, that was the one from 1918. Mm -hmm. Hepatitis C, uh, some studies have shown that individuals with hepatitis C may have a higher risk of developing Parkinson's yeah. disease compared to those without the infection. Um, HIV infection um, uh, has been associated with an increased risk of various neurological disorders, including Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease. Some studies have suggested that the virus may directly or indirectly affect the dopamine-producing cells. Mm -hmm. Herpes simplex virus. Herpes simplex Yeah, virus, especially yeah. Uh, HSV-1 has been associated with uh, Parkinson's. HSV-1 is also associated with this encephalopathy, uh, behavioral and, and cognitive encephalopathy. That's a very common one that, that affects the brain because it actually resides in the neuron, don't they? I mean, right. when we get infected, then it actually becomes dormant and lives in neurons. Mm -hmm. And of course, Epstein-Barr virus. That one's been associated with everything. I mean, from, that affects like so many yeah, I mean, neurological Guillain conditions. Yeah, I mean, syndrome to right. Parkinson's, that's peripheral. Parkinson's, MS, and others as well. So these are some of the viruses that have been associated. And of course, bacterial meningitis and things of that nature can increase risk as well. So those are some infectious correlations. They're not the strongest, but but uh, that they've been seen to, uh, they seem to be uh, uh, more strongly correlated with development of Parkinson's right, disease. Right, right. All right. So, th so there are a number of conditions that closely mimic Parkinson's disease. Yes. And uh, that's why it's so important for a movement disorder specialist to come in and be able to diagnose Parkinson's disease because they kind of look like each other. And this is such an important distinctive point because there's Parkinsonism and there's Parkinson's disease. Parkinsonism is the symptomology. Well, the symptomology does not have to happen as a result of this degenerative disease, meaning that this disease that something is causing the death of uh, initially of these dopamine producing cells, but then it progresses to involve other cells and of, of course ultimately ends up in killing the person. That's Parkinson's disease. Parkinsonism does not have to be related to this degenerative disease. It can happen as a result of multiple things, such as medications. Mm -hmm. it, it's not necessarily progressive. Often, actually, it's not progressive. Right. Parkinsonism can 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 uh, result as a result of um, um, uh, some some uh, side effect of medications, as we said, some some uh, infections and things of that nature, and they don't have to be progressive. Right, absolutely. So uh, other neurological conditions that mimic Parkinson's disease is, like you mentioned earlier, essential tremor, which is a mm -hmm. completely different disease. Um, sometimes uh, normal pressure hydrocephalus can uh, present like Parkinson's disease. When a little different though, I mean. Definitely, well, the, the, the difficulty with walking. Yeah. Um, the memory problems. And the tremors are not there. Though. The tremors are not there. But in all of these conditions, you know, it doesn't necessarily have all of the symptoms no. that are present, no, presented right. with Parkinson's disease, but they have major <clears throat> uh, uh, resemblance. But, um, but, but the other thing about NPH or normal pressure hydrocephalus is that it can be treated. If, if caught early enough, it can be treated. That's true, yeah. Multiple system atrophy is another condition. It's a neurodegenerative disorder. Um, and um, again, in multiple system atrophy, you get the slowness, you get the tremors, you get the stiffness, and you also get you know some impairment in cognition and speech as well. But the central thing in my MSA or multi-system atrophy is autonomic dysfunction. Mm. 
Autonomic dysfunction is your sympathetic parasympathetic systems are awry. So the blood pressures go as low as, you know, very, very low to the point where a person feels lightheaded and sometimes they faint to so high that it causes strokes. They, they vacillate up and down. By the way, we have autonomic instability in Parkinson's as well, but not as severe as an MSA in multi-system atrophy. Multiple system atrophy is one of those neurological conditions that just, just makes me so uncomfortable. It's I have rapid. never been so fearful and uncomfortable with any other disease, especially when patients experience these huge vacillations in their blood pressure and heart rate um, during the day. It's just so scary, isn't yeah. it? And, and they also have these pseudobulbar phenomena. Pseudobulbar means their emotions go up and down, inappropriate laughter, inappropriate crying. So they're devastated in every single way. And other diseases, progressive supranuclear policy, which That's has right. the same kind of things as yes. well. So these are some of the mix, but these two diseases are much more rapid. Right. Corticobasal syndrome. Yes. It's another one uh, that affects movement and language. So so multiple, and, and like you mentioned, the progressive supranuclear palsy. So these are conditions that need to be ruled out or differentiated uh, with Parkinson's disease. All right. So as far as diagnosing Parkinson's is concerned, um, you and I as, as neurologists, when we were trained, exam is everything, isn't it? Like a neurological exam yeah. tells so much of what's going on and hence um, towards a Parkinson's disease. The way people move, the kind of tremors that they have, the slow progression of the disease, the combination of different things that happen at the same time, and also a good history of some of the non-motor symptoms that they may have had for even up to decades. Um, gives us a good idea of where the lesion is and whether this is Parkinson's disease or not. There's a particular type of rigidity of, of extremities. It's called cogwheel uh, uh, rigid, uh, rigidity. And, and it's like as if you're, you're, you're moving the arms against, it's like a lead pipe being moved um, and, and then released. So it's a very, very unusual uh, rigidity as well. So the exam tells you everything. It's like a ratchet-like jerkiness, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, um, uh, but, but the distinguishing fact feature, you, which is not universal, but, but it's fairly common is the, is the tremor. Mm -hmm. It's the facial expression or this, this hypomemia, which is the, the flat faces and emotion, emotion, emotionless face. And then if it's progressed a little more, this, this small steps, the small steps, and then the rest come on over time. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And so <clears throat> as far as blood tests and imaging is concerned, we we have specific sequences of MRI that can look at um, the different parts of the brain, that can look at the basal ganglia, and can look at uh, the substantia nigra as well. There are, there are. I mean, but the, the, the unique, is, the MRI is great, but to detect atrophy, because MRI is great for vascular diseases, is great for uh, structural changes, especially in early uh, Parkinson's or even in moderate level. You don't see those changes very no, distinctly in MRI. Don't. They're not but, very clear. But other tools like PET scan are great because right. you can see the different parts of the brain uh, activated. What that scan? It's it's actually SPECT. It's a single photon emission uh, tomography imaging used to visualize the brain's uh, dopamine uh, transporters, as well as looking at dopamine in, in other parts of the body as well. So it's, it's a very unique and very specific and sensitive tool. As far as treatment is concerned, there's 
really no cure for Parkinson's disease. But at this point, we have several uh, medication available that can uh, manage the symptoms, and they can do it very, very well. And these include, you know, things <clears throat> like Cinemet, uh, which is probably one of the oldest medications out there. Yeah, I mean, there are different categories. They all have to do with dopamine, right? Right. So, uh, Carbidopa, levodopa. Yeah, no, well, and yeah, no you would usually with these treatments, it's either increasing the production of something, reducing the breakdown of something, or affecting something downstream so that there's more of this particular neurotransmitter present throughout the brain. Mm -hmm. So the dopamine precursor drug, which was one of the first one, is Aldopa, which is a combination of two drugs. It's a carbidopa, a levodopa, and they have the carbidopa because it blocks it's the effect of the, the dopamine producing um, part of it peripherally in the body. Because if you have a lot of dopamine peripherally, oh my goodness, I've seen patients vomit and throw up and, and unstable. That's right. So it blocks its effect externally, but it works centrally. Centrally that meaning was, in the brain. In the brain. Mm -hmm. And that was the discovery because, okay, so we need dopamine, give people dopamine. It doesn't work like that. If you give people dopamine, they're going to have severe side effects. So it had to be central dopamine. So it had to block the effect peripherally and then work centrally. And so smart. It is. And, is, and, and, and not, the smart part is it also has to then be captured by the, these, these transporters that then puts it into the central nervous system. And that's important because if you have a lot of protein during lunchtime, let's say, and you're taking the drug, it blocks the transport. Mm. So we tell people... Don't eat at the same time as you're taking the pills. So the dopamine uh, drugs are the L-DOPA, or another name is um, Cinemet. And then you have the dopamine agonists, or drugs that act like dopamine. You have the Prexol. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and then uh, apomorphine and rotaglutine. These are... These are tongue-twisting <laughs> drugs, <laughs> the, the, but, but lots of these, uh, these uh, drugs that act like dopamine. And you use these as an adjunct, as an as a, as a add-on. So, and then you have drugs that, that stop the breakdown of dopamine. You have the uh, COMT inhibitors, uh, catecholamine O-methyltransferase inhibitors, and they stop the breakdown. You also have the... MAOB inhibitors, again, breakdown of the dopamine stopped. So these are important because imagine if, if you're a neurologist, it's tough enough to know these hundreds of drugs, but just in Parkinson's, it's not just adding, giving somebody some dopamine or L-DOPA or, or cinnamon. It's when to give it and how much to give it and when to give the blockers as opposed to breakdown products because uh, you can increase the rigidity, you can reduce the stiffness, but then you can have these side effects as GI side effects, and then you can actually have dyskinesia. So, the, so it's a lot of management. I'm saying this to kind of tell people that as much as people think that we haven't done much in neurology, I'm being I'm I'm I'm, I'm being apologetic. There's been a lot of progress, especially with diseases like Parkinson's, which would Most leave definitely. people debilitated. Yeah after a couple of years. Now people are pretty functional later on. Yeah, absolutely. And the combination of these medications, because they're not given one at a time, sometimes combination of these medications do wonders. They do. And the timing, the dosage, um, it's, it's, it's very important to work with a movement disorder specialist who basically tailors a treatment plan for everyone. 
for each and every individual. And everybody's so different. And 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 the, the side effects have to be, you have to be on top of the side effects because there are people, when you give people dopamine, guess what happens? All the emotional and the psychological dopamine behavior starts. So all of a sudden people get into these addictive behaviors or gambling. One of the things people are warned about is if you're into gambling, be careful. So mm. because they lose control, they, 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 they get over motivated. I'm simplifying the concept. So part of the treatment actually might cause people to become addicted to behaviors. And that's and, because the whole reward system is affected exactly. by the medication. It, exactly. It, it's just remarkable. And now the latest tools, although it's not latest now, it's a few years, is the deep brain stimulation. I We're suppose, doing. I suppose we should call it more invasive treatments, Invasive right? treatments, yeah. surgical treatments, yes. And so they have these. So now we know how movement takes place. It's actually incredibly interesting. It's it's one system affecting another system, and it, like, it's like multiple systems doing feedback mechanisms of movement. And if you put a wire in this particular part of the brain, basal ganglia, different aspects of the basal ganglia, you can actually turn it up. And you've seen the videos of this. And if you haven't, we should we will definitely make it available to you. Where this person does completely unable to move, and they turned on their deep brain stimulator with this little dial. And all of a sudden, this person can get up and move and walk and yeah. dance. I think those are one of the most fascinating videos I've ever seen. The fact that somebody is almost catatonic and then they essentially turn on the machine and you see these smooth movements. Yes. And it's 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 so remarkable. rewarding. And they work. They work for many years, so they prolong this or delay the symptoms from... But the degenerative process is going on underneath, right? So eventually it catches up even in spite of that. But at least they have incredible, incredible um, uh, benefit from this device. And now the, the most remarkable thing that we've learned from these devices is that when you turn those dials, you're also affecting people's thinking and emotions. Mm. So as much as people thought that we were not machines, uh, who was it that said we're walking algorithm, al algorithms? We are walking algorithms. We are walking machines. I know that this is not Might popular topic. We're going to get a lot there, of Dean. pushback. <laughs> but by by turning these dials, we see people's emotions change, their thinking process change, their 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 motivations change. So we've learned quite a bit just from these 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 uh, devices that are in people's brains. I know that since it was approved in 1997, it's been used for dystonias, for uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. It's been approved for some types of epilepsy as well. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I, I guess, yeah, it, it, it does kind of support that one statement you made earlier. Um, okay, all right, so those are the treatments. And as far as prognosis is concerned, like you said earlier, it's a very slow-moving, very chronic disease. And, you know, um, the, the time, although I don't want to make a generalized statement, but, you know, from the time when people start developing their first symptoms to um, uh, to the point where they become debilitated yeah. is usually very, very long. And there's so much that can be done to slow down the progression of Parkinson's disease. Correct. We talked about medication, but we know the profound impact of lifestyle interventions for for prevention and slowing down the progression of Parkinson's disease. As far as prevention is concerned, there are some literature, and you and I have actually published on this topic as well, 
um, for things like, for example, being uh, physically active or eating a Mediterranean-style diet reduces the risk of developing Parkinson's yeah, disease. For, for people that want to get more information, they can get the transcript of this um, uh, this podcast, but we also have done written a blog, and then within that you can get connected to our papers that we've written on this topic and 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 uh, and some so other the, uh, some, resources uh, some, uh, some as well. Some other resources as well. Yes. Right. So, um, so th- so that's incredibly important. Um, you know, eating healthy and making sure that one stays physically active. And also, w- what do you suggest for people who have a family history of Parkinson's disease? Say, for example, most <clears throat> you know there are young people who have had either a grandparent or a parent with Parkinson's disease. When should they start worrying? Because I there's no screening test for Parkinson's yeah. disease. This is the same thing that we keep telling everybody. Is like, uh, should we do a genetic test? I'm like. Until we have a way of altering the genetics, it, it just creates anxiety. So assume you have risk. Even if you don't have family history of this, assume you have risk and do the things that have been shown to be beneficial. We know that certain vitamin deficiencies have, been, have had a greater correlation with, the, with this disease. Vitamin D, vitamin C, vitamin E. These have been shown to be zinc and others. But more importantly... Uh, the same things that we talk about in Alzheimer's, the same thing that we talk about in, in, in stroke, same thing's true here. A cleaner diet, one with less processed food, a cleaner diet, one with more plants, um, uh, with more nutrients, a, a, a being aware of your vitamin states, vitamin B12 and omega-3 and all of these stuff. Uh, uh, exercise, one of the strongest correlations with a positive effect uh, on brain, but especially when it comes to risk of Parkinson's, is those that exercise regularly have less tendency to develop all, uh, Parkinson's. Not just affect you positively when you exer- when you have Parkinson's, but actually reducing your risk. That's uh, the strongest one is exercise. So eating healthy uh, and exercising, and, and of course sleep. Those are the three big ones. And then the other ones are alcohol, higher correlation. Smoking, definitely high, higher correlation with, with Parkinson's, but alcohol, definitely. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, traumatic brain injury. Um, that's a weird one to talk about, but avoid getting your head hit. You know, if you're involved in sports that, that, that lead to uh, repetitive trauma, I, I'm a big supporter of, uh, or a big proponent of telling people, especially for your kids, do not involve your kids in sports that lead to traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's one thing that I'm not afraid of telling people. If, if you're going to do it later in life, that's your choice. That's your adult, but but definitely not when they're younger. That's true. And as far as therapy, lifestyle therapy for patients with um, Parkinson's disease is concerned, one thing that is incredibly helpful is what we refer to as the big therapy. Yeah. Um, the big therapy is a type of uh, physical therapy and an exercise program which uh, works on the patient by exaggerating their movements, their writing and their speaking. So basically, the therapist tells them to do everything in a big way, take big steps, open your mouth wider when you speak, speak louder. Write bigger. Write bigger. So, you know, the training of the mind to do everything in an exaggerated way it's an exaggeration for the patient, but when it comes out, it seems more towards a normal side uh, for people without Parkinson's disease. I always found that very fascinating. And it works. Yeah, it definitely works. It works for works. a while. I mean, for, yeah. for quite a while. And what the funny part of this is, well, uh, interesting part, 
is that the person that you're telling them to do the big, they're not aware that they're actually moving less and they're, they're, they're writing smaller. When you tell them to do the exaggerated, then it becomes their normal. So it's a, it's a very interesting phenomenon to see where people are not aware of their, their, their uh, true nature of the manifestation of the disease. Absolutely. All right. Fantastic. Um, so hopefully this was helpful for the audience. What, what does the future hold for Parkinson's disease? I, I'm very optimistic that our ability to detect the disease way earlier is, is right around the corner. And that matters because if we can detect that somebody is at risk way before you've lost 80% of the neurons, uh, the dopamine-producing neurons, you can do a lot about it. Um, uh, our ability to detect the toxins, the, the inciting factors uh, is going to be much, much better. The interplay between genetics and environment and, and, and age and, and, and uh, all these things, we're beginning to learn much more. Uh, and the reason is technology. A big data analysis, ability of machines to do large data analysis that would be untenable for, for humans, un, impossible for humans to, to, uh, to achieve. All of that's going to give a, open up the door for detection of these complex interplay of time, um, um, environment, genetics, individual uh, um, uh, unique, other individual unique variables. At the interplay of that, uh, detecting and, and, and quantifying risk is, is right around the corner, and that's going to change the, the whole field. And of course, treatments, mm -hmm. definitely right. treatments. Uh, uh, the, now we have machine, uh, well, uh, these supercomputers that are producing drugs, depending on, 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 on the condition or the protein that's missing or the uh, genetic factor. Um, uh, we, we are, we'll be doing uh, uh, pharmaceutical, uh, cr pharmaceutical creation, but with the help of these incredible machines. Uh, we'll be doing genetic alterations uh, with the, you know, with the, with the, uh, with the tools that we have. With the, so we're right at the precipice of an incredible medical revolution that's going to affect uh, so you know the lives of so many that suffer from these devastating diseases. I'm very optimistic. So which means that for the those that suffer from this disease, for those that are beginning the journey, and uh, you know change your lifestyle. Make sure that you, you do the things that have been shown to be beneficial. Exercise, exercise, exercise. We're becoming, exercise is the biggest thing in our life now. Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, the, between exercise and nutrition, you've taken care of a significant amount of disease risk, as well as um, living healthy with disease. Uh, so that's, the, that's what you have at hand right now. Absolutely. Well, this was fascinating. Thank you very much for listening.